Welcome to the Scoop and Score podcast. Do they worry you at all? Are you worried? Ridiculous, Morgan. My boy. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Your host, Stephen Kahn. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to week two of the college football season. Hope you all enjoyed week one. I know I did. And let's just jump right into it. Uh, I guess I might as well get some Notre Dame thoughts out of the way right off the top here. So if, if you're only here for, for Notre Dame thoughts, you can listen to this and tune out. If you don't care about my thoughts on Notre Dame, you can skip ahead a couple minutes. But let's start with the good, and the good being that they won the game. Um, you know, five years ago, we saw them lose this game out in Austin, Texas. Um, it, it was not an easy environment. The crowd was clearly going nuts. Uh, all reports that it was an incredibly hot and humid night um, on a night when Notre Dame saw a lot of its defensive depth go down with injury, and therefore, you know, you've got guys playing more snaps than they're expected to on a really hot night. Not totally shocking that the defense wore down late. And again, they won the game. North Carolina, Wisconsin, Washington, they all wish they could say the same against varying degrees of quality opponents. So that's a good win no matter what. Uh, Another positive, Jack Cohn threw the ball really well. Uh, Kevin Austin, Joe Wilkins, Braden Lindsey, Michael Mayer all made plays catching the ball. Uh, Kyron Williams, Chris Tyree um, are as good as we thought, maybe better. Kyron Williams really might be one of the very best running backs in the entire country. The, the one thing we just kept saying while watching that game, he gets at least two more yards than he should on every single touch. He was turning two-yard losses into four-yard gains. He was turning six-yard gains into nine-yard games. It's just, it's just unbelievable what he's able to do. Really impressed with him. John Doerr, who's had you know a bit of an up-and-down career as the kicker, drilled two big kicks, including obviously the game winner. And Kyle Hamilton, no news here, but he's an absolute game-changer in the back of that defense. So that's all the good. Now for the not-so-good, I said before the game that my biggest concern with this Notre Dame team was the offensive line. And now the starting left tackle is going to be lost for an extended period of time, you know, potentially the season, hopefully not that much. And I'd say the rest of the line played below my already modest expectations. So the offensive line is a concern. I'm not sure if Notre Dame fans realize just how good we've had it. Looking over the last eight seasons or so of Notre Dame football, Notre Dame's produced four of like the six or so best linemen in the entire NFL. And they've got another like seven or eight starters on top of that. I mean, you don't get that kind of production. Alabama gets that kind of production. And even they haven't produced quite the level of starter and high level starter that Notre Dame has. But nowhere else are you just kind of reloading the offensive line every year and having studs every single year. And Notre Dame has had that for about an eight-year span here of just absolute top-level offensive line play. And then four years ago, Harry Heastan, the offensive line coach, he leaves for the Bears job. And, you know, it's possible things are slipping from a recruiting standpoint. It's possible they're slipping from a development standpoint. Could be both. And now we get a weaker, weaker offensive line. Now, there is a counterpoint to what might be coming off as panic. Now, it was the first game 
for what's essentially a totally new offensive line, all working together, certainly, for the first time. So obviously there's plenty of room and time to improve there. Another thing that Brian Kelly mentioned is that it was really loud at Florida State. So when you're trying to work on a silent count, it can be much harder to time up the entire offensive line so that they're all moving in cohesion at the snap. There were a few times that you could very clearly notice they were just starting the plays at different times. And if you start late, you're going to get blown off the ball. So let's see how much better they get. But it's just a concern that my, my number one red flag coming into the season is now an even bigger concern as we move through the rest of the season. On the defensive side of the ball, linebackers officially an issue. Um, they lost who I expected to be their best linebacker a week before the season to a broken ankle, and they sustained two more injuries at linebacker on Sunday night. So now all of a sudden they're, uh, they're thin at a position that was supposed to be a real strength, and they're going to need to get true freshman Prince Colley up to speed as quickly as possible. I expect him to see some pretty significant time against Toledo this coming week. I mean, this is another concern, just given what the linebackers are asked to do in this aggressive Marcus Freeman defense, they need to be getting after the passer. They need to be blitzing with efficiency. And unfortunately, when you're asking people to play a little bit out of position or you're asking young players to step up, there's just going to be some questions there. And there's a good chance you're going to see busts on plays that lead to 89-yard touchdown runs and things of that nature. So you're going to see more big plays against this Notre Dame defense. The question is, is can they uh, overcome those with more turnovers and havoc plays and sacks and things like that? Still TBD on, I think, the cornerbacks. They certainly did not get exposed against Florida State, but they also didn't really get tested. So overall, that's a solid outcome, but we just don't really know yet and uh, there's going to be some teams on the schedule that are going to be throwing the ball all over the yard, so going to need to get an answer about these corners. So moving ahead just uh, to the upcoming matchup with Toledo, and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leave ND alone here for the rest of the podcast, but uh, first and fo- foremost, I am very excited that I will be attending this game, first college football game in person for me since October 2019. Shout out to uh, producer John, who will be celebrating the end of his bachelorhood. Uh, shout out to uh, the, the rest of the Keenan guys and, and some others uh, that, uh, you know, if, if you're listening to this, possibly on the way to South Bend, uh, I'll just say can't, uh, can't wait to get out there and going to have a lot of fun. On to what's going down on the field. This Toledo team is good. It's a lot better than, say, Bowling Green or New Mexico or the South Florida team from last year that we've played in early weeks and just been able to dominate. This is a legitimate team. They return. Now, again, I don't know exactly how this is calculated. I think it has to do with, you know, on offense, it's sort of yards produced on defense. It's tackles. And you talk about starts on offensive line and things like that. But they return the most production of any team in the FBS. So all 130 plus teams, Toledo returns more from last year than anyone else in the country. Um, I expect them to, this could be a test for the corners right off the bat. Probably going to take a lot of deep shots. They like to throw it deep. Uh, They've been successful at it. Good quarterback, good big receivers on the outside. So they're definitely going to test the receivers a little bit. And then they'll also probably play a second quarterback who is much more of a mobile guy. Expect him to run quite a bit, but also is capable of throwing the ball. Now, in terms of, you know, 
forgetting the opponent and, and the matchup, Notre Dame coming off a very short week. They got back to South Bend early Monday morning after that hard-fought game against Florida State. That essentially puts them up two days off of schedule for what they're going to be in the most of the rest of the season. So going from a really, you know, hot, physical, extra, you know, overtime, so extra time, you know, had to play right down to the end, trying to turn that around and figure out how to get this team, you know, both recovered, but then back up to speed uh, and ready to play on Saturday. That is definitely going to be a challenge. Um, the 17-point spread suggests no one's expecting a, a full-on blowout in this game, and I'm certainly not either. Uh, I would lean towards taking the points, although I could see a situation where Notre Dame is up like, you know, 31-20 and, and tacks on a touchdown late for, for a late cover. But I absolutely expect this to be a battle. I think this is going to be a one-score game for a good chunk of the game. But ultimately, you know, if Notre Dame thinks, you know, if Notre Dame's going to be a good team this year, they've got to come out and, and win games like this. So ultimately, no no panic like like picking the loss against Florida State, but I definitely would not be surprised if this was close into the fourth quarter. Lastly, just my plea um, to anyone, um, you know, find find some way to watch. Go to, if you want to go to a bar and watch this or something, just don't sign up for Peacock Premium. Um, if, if, if it's important to you that we maintain our way of sports watching life, just do not give them the subscribers on this. Um, it's just, it's not the way to go. And as, as, a, as both a perfect example of what I'm talking about and a good segue, last weekend, Iowa State, Northern Iowa, you know, one score game right down in the final few minutes, the ESPN Plus stream of that game just cut out with like five minutes to go. People just missed a critical portion of a surprisingly close game. That's not the world we want to live in. But moving on to that game, Iowa State does win a very close game against a good FCS team. Um, Iowa, their, their week two opponent, on the other hand, completely dominated a ranked Big Ten team. So you look at those two outcomes, and you're like, okay, Iowa's, Iowa's got this. Iowa's going to take down the Cyhawk. I would say not so fast on that one. Um, you know, Iowa State always stinks week one. Uh, they went to like triple overtime with this same Northern Iowa team a few years ago. Last year, they lost outright to Louisiana, did not prevent them from having good seasons in either of those years. Also, you have to imagine they were probably trying not to show very much, knowing they've got this big matchup with Iowa coming up this week. On the flip side, Iowa, that was a very important game for them, playing a ranked conference opponent right off the bat, they had to show everything in that game. They, they had to, you know, put their full game plan, um, they had to deploy a full game plan and, and really not hold anything back the way I'm assuming Iowa State did. On top of that, I you gotta, of course, if you make plays and you score points, that counts. You put it on the scoreboard. But you can't ignore the fact that I, the score of that game and, and the perception of Iowa's performance is inflated by two pick sixes in that game. So ultimately, with all the factors coming into the season, I liked ISU in this game. Nothing has changed my mind. I think it's going to be just an absolutely wild scene in Ames, Iowa. Game day will be down there. I was hoping we could get this spread below three, just kind of based on how the two teams looked in week one. But, but Vegas is kind of holding steady, leaving it at four and a half. So I think they know what's up. I think Iowa State wins this game. If I had to choose a side, 
I would lay the four and a half and, and take Iowa State in a game that I expect them to win by about seven or ten points. But this game is just always such a battle. It's just I, I am a little bit scared about giving any more than three in what could just be a right down to the wire game. So ultimately, I think it's a stay away. But I do like uh, Iowa State to win the game outright. Um, going back to uh, to some more action from week one, one of the one of the early games of the week, North Carolina Virginia Tech. I was I when I'm even when I'm right, I'm I'm even more wrong. I, I was right to be down, I think, on UNC coming into the year, but I was so much more wrong to be extremely down on Virginia Tech. This Virginia Tech team looked solid. Uh, Braxton Burmeister at quarterback looked really good. This guy Amari Barno, number eleven. Um, playing like a defensive line, sort of outside linebacker hybrid. He was an absolute, absolute beast, really not looking forward uh, to Notre Dame having to go up against him. And North Carolina's offense was not shocking to me. Um, You know, you bring back everyone from a bad offensive line, that doesn't just automatically make it a better offensive line the next year. And we we talked about it in the pre, in the, you know, in the preview show, um, they lost two really good receivers and two really good running backs. Sam Howell looked like a guy that just didn't have any of his playmakers around him from last year. He's just like, oh, you left me with nothing. That's pretty much what it looked like out there. Not a shocking performance, but props to Virginia Tech. They were better than I expected, and I think that they uh, they will probably be a factor in the ACC moving forward. Penn State, Wisconsin, I don't know that I have a lot of takeaways from this one. Um, Penn State's secondary was definitely very good. I don't know how much I can say. I mean, Jahan Dotson is a playmaker. Uh, you know, I, I like Noah Kane, but he certainly wasn't awesome from the running back position. And Sean Clifford was uninspiring, to say the least. Uh, and Wisconsin, unfortunately, it was even worse. I, I, I say that Penn State definitely has a good secondary and definitely has a good receiver in Jahan Dotson. I'm not sure what Wisconsin is good at. Um certainly discouraging to see the quarterback play of Graham Mertz. And I I said, uh, you know, going into the Notre Dame game, I was like, well, if anything, I have even more confidence in Jack Cohn now after seeing maybe this is just what quarterbacks at Wisconsin look like. And sure enough, Jack Cohn comes out and throws for, you know, I don't high 300 yards. I forget what exactly the number was and a bunch of touchdowns. And uh, yeah, maybe it's just about breaking out of that Wisconsin system because that offense looked really bad. And, uh, and they're going to have to get things fixed in a hurry uh, with, with Notre Dame coming up not too far from now. Um, another interesting game from that noon slot was Oklahoma-Tulane. You know, Oklahoma has sort of been crowned a little bit this season in a way that I don't totally understand. Uh, on Friday night, I happened to be watching some coverage on CBS Sports, and I heard Danny Cannell, you know, on a desk show. You know, he was, he was talking about how certain teams – you know, you, you can't take anything for granted, granted, and only certain teams have earned the right to, you know, you expect them to go out and win every week against lesser teams. And he said Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State and Oklahoma. And I just, the first three, yes, of course, but Oklahoma, this is an Oklahoma team that has lost to an unranked Kansas State team two years in a row. I just don't understand why Oklahoma would ever be put on that tier. And as we saw, they got a real scare from Tulane, a Tulane team that was displaced because of Hurricane Ida. That game was supposed to be at Tulane. They had to come to Oklahoma to play that game. And, you know, 
Tulane had the ball with a chance to score and win that game. So let's just maybe pump the brakes on the idea that Oklahoma's defense has caught up to their offense. And based on what we saw in that game, there's a chance that the offense is actually catching up with the defense a little bit and taking a little bit of a step back. As Spencer Rattler is certainly good, but has not shown what Jalen Hurts or Baker Mayfield or Kyler Murray showed uh, the three guys that had the job before him. So certainly uh, still a ways to go if Oklahoma wants to be a serious playoff and national title contender. UCLA and LSU. Um, LSU's defense still stinks as as UCLA and their in their to to quote uh, to quote Big O their sissy blue shirts dominated the Tigers in the trenches. Zach Charbonnet had another big game. You know, looking at LSU, it's just it's pretty amazing that Coach O could go from arguably the best season ever to fired in a span of two years. Definitely going to be interesting to see how uh, LSU continues this year. If they don't bounce back in a huge way, I think there is a real chance that he will be gone with some of the, you know, off-the-field issues that have gone on under his watch. And, and you know, losing, winning is the way to, to smooth that over. And if they have back-to-back bad years, uh, there, there could be some serious, serious heat turned up on Coach O. Alabama remains very, very good. Um, the defense is clearly better than it was last year. And unless Miami's defense really stinks, the offense isn't too far behind. Uh, Bryce Young was maybe the most impressive quarterback of the week, regardless of age. Um, and, and we certainly knew they were going to reload at, uh, at, at receiver with, with Mechie and the, the transfer from, from Ohio State and Bolden. I mean, they, they just have guys, um, you know, people think that Texas A&M might test them this year. I don't. I, I have not understood that train of thought. I don't think that that Alabama is going to be playing a close game before the you know probable SEC championship game, uh, at which time they are likely to face an opponent with an absolutely lethal defense. We saw what the Georgia Bulldogs did, holding Clemson to three points. Sure enough, the Clemson defense also held Georgia to three points. But, uh, but the Bulldogs created seven points with their defense via a pick six in the second quarter. And Clemson just never really threatened. We knew the weakness of this Clemson team was probably its offensive line. And that's a bad weakness to have when you're playing a Georgia team that just has a bunch of killers in that front seven. So if Clemson struggles at all in its ACC schedule, then maybe we can say, okay, you know, Georgia's not quite as just absolutely deadly as we thought, but I expect Clemson to bounce back no problem and mostly roll over everyone else on that schedule. And and if that comes to fruition, we're going to be looking back at this performance by Georgia and just saying, okay, I mean, if they did that to Clemson, then you have to imagine that they can at least slow down that Alabama team. And I just think we are really, really headed for a potentially fun SEC championship game. Obviously, some concerns about the Georgia offense, but you know, by the same token, they're not going to be playing anyone with, with a defense as good as Clemson's maybe ever again this season. So uh, you know, maybe Alabama's is, but, but Clemson's got a really great defense too. So let's see both of these teams get to play. You know, I, I heard you know, people saying, oh, you know, everyone said that Penn State, Wisconsin was so gross, but, but Georgia, Clemson was, you know, just two really great defenses. Well, let's see how those four teams kind of play once they play teams other than each other. Because I have a feeling Wisconsin's still not going to look beautiful. 
and I think Georgia and Clemson are going to be just fine with their offenses once they get to play against lesser defenses. Uh, just two other quick shout-outs from last week. The first to the Syracuse Orange. Way to shove it. Way, excuse, excuse, way to step up and shove an L uh, right, right into my face. Easy win at Ohio. Uh, I am sorry for doubting you guys. It will not happen again. Best of luck against Rutgers this week. And even more importantly, big congratulations to the new coaching staff at Utah State as the Aggies utilized a fourth-quarter comeback on the road to deliver a shot to Nick Rolovich and the Washington State Cougars. Really hoping to celebrate Utah State more directly on this podcast a little later in the season, but still some things to work out behind the scenes. Zuck, let's let's talk to the SID and, and let's make this happen. Very short pause here to just mention DeBraga Meats. You know, still no promo code, so I'm wondering if the good folks over there at DeBraga even care about me or this program anymore. But we're still going to give them a shout out. You know, they just got really tasty meat. Load up that freezer. There's, there's nothing like on a Monday you're having a tough day and you say, you know what, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to have a steak. You pull the steak out of the freezer. You put it in the fridge. A little thaw action ready to go the next day. And you just treat yourself on a Tuesday. Nothing like a Tuesday treat yourself steak, but you need to have the product on hand for that to be possible. Debraga.com, do it. Now, uh, quickly before we get to uh, some more week two games, full-time listener and part-time contributor Danny Dimes asked me to go over the new overtime rules this year. I don't have a ton of analysis, but here are the rules. Starting in the second overtime, both teams now have to go for two after scoring a touchdown. And if it goes beyond a second overtime, it then just becomes a two-point conversion contest back and forth. Now, I don't really like the two-point conversion contest, but I at least get the idea of trying to shorten the game. I mean, especially after that, like, nine-overtime game between Texas A&M and LSU a few years ago. I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. But what I don't understand is why you're being forced to go for two in the second overtime. Theoretically, the second overtime, you know, the, the teams flip-flop who went first. Shouldn't both teams play under the same rules when forced to go first or second? And then beyond that, there's actually more potential outcomes to result in the game being decided if you allow the teams to go for either one or two. If they both have to go for two, you can either get it or you don't get it. And, you know, either they both get it, they both don't get it, Two out of the three options, the game remains tied. Or if you can go for one or two, you can get the one, you can not get the one, you can go for two and get the two, you can not get the There's just so many more options. It's, it, it's just crazy. Let them make the decision. It's an exciting decision whether to go for one or two. And in some ways, you know, especially if it's a lesser team where going for two might be their best way to win. You know, let's say, let's say you know, a big underdog goes to overtime. And it, and it goes to overtime, and they get the ball first in the first overtime. And they score a touchdown. You're never going to go for two after you score first. It's just not analytically a wise decision, because then the other team knows if you, it, let's say you don't get it, you're screwed. And if you do get it, the other team knows they have to go for two, and they have like a 50-50 chance of getting it, and now it wasn't even really worth it to go for two. So you're never going to go for it the first time. But let's say they get it to a second overtime. 
and the other team scores a touchdown, kicks the extra point. Now the underdog scores a touchdown. They can go for two in the win right there. That's huge. But by changing this rule, the favorite would have already gone for two, maybe gotten it. And now the underdog, you know, doesn't have the chance to just win it on one play. I just really don't like that part of the rule. So again, I'm, I'm fine with the, the shootout style two-point conversion contest starting in the third. But we should be going back to you can make your choice for the first two overtimes. That's really all I have to say about that. Um, do with that what you will. Danny Dimes, hope I answered your question, and I hope you're doing well. Looking ahead to week two, it's a decent week. A couple headliners, but not quite as loaded as week one. Uh, at noon, we've got Oregon at Ohio State in what was, you know, a big circled game um, coming into this season. Unfortunately, Oregon phenom Kayvon Thibodeau, um, he is probably hurt, uh, rolled up his ankle uh, in, in the week one game, uh, just a sprain, you know, they're, they're calling him day to day and we'll see if he plays. I just, if he plays at all, I don't expect him to be that effective. And when a kid is, you know, likely to be a top five pick, I just wouldn't be that surprised if, if he wanted to, to take the more cautious route in this one. So I just, I don't expect him to play much, and if he does play, I don't expect him to be that effective. And I just think that that makes an enormous difference with this Oregon team. I mean, with him healthy, C.J. Stroud, a young quarterback, could definitely struggle having to think about him on every play. Without him, I think the offense, the the Ohio State offense, should just be very comfortable, and Oregon's not going to be able to keep up. So based on those circumstances, I like Ohio State to win that one by about two scores, and I just, yeah, I don't expect that much drama. I don't I don't think it'll be that close for that long. Um, we've also got Texas at Arkansas, sort of a pre-SEC matchup. Opportunity to see if uh, Coach Sark can keep things rolling after an impressive Week 1 debut. App State at Miami. You know, this just comes down to how does, how does Miami bounce back from the Alabama beatdown? Um, you know, sometimes... Does, does a team get motivated by that, or do they get demoralized? And if they got motivated, they need to come out and play really well against a decent App State team. If they're going to meet their expectations for this season, Jarek King needs to come out and have a big game, put up big numbers, and Miami needs to win this game by two scores, you know, cover the eight points, I think was last I saw. Go out and win by 14 to 21 and just make this a comfortable win and, and prove that this is going to be, you know, a 9-10 win season for Miami. We've got Washington at Michigan. Luster off this one a little bit with, with Washington taking the loss at home to Montana to open the season. Jimmy Lake off to a, a really tough start um, as head coach in what seemed like a really easy hire when it happened and just a, a good match and a, and a good hire and just off to a bad start. There hasn't been any effective quarterback play at Washington in quite a while. I mean, Jacob Eason is like the last guy who really did anything of value at Washington. Um, I don't know. They just, they really, you know, they're often pretty decent on defense, but just no spark offensively. Michigan, on the other hand, Looked really strong on both sides of the ball. Um, they unfortunately lost Ronnie Bell for the season, an explosive receiver, who's been one of the bright spots over the last couple of years, in my opinion. But Blake Corum looked really good to me uh, coming out of the backfield in, in week one. So they've definitely got some playmakers. Um, K-9 
Cade McNamara is the kind of quarterback's probably not going to make many mistakes. I don't want to put the game manager tag on him because I think he's a pretty talented player. Um, but uh, this is the kind of game, if Michigan takes care of the ball, their defense should completely dominate Washington. So I, I think McNamara you know, doesn't throw any picks. Uh, they, they're able to move the ball a little bit. And, and Michigan wins this one in, in what I expect to be a pretty low-scoring game. So maybe keep an eye on that under. Um, but, but I think Michigan wins this one you know, by about 7 to 10 points. We've got Utah at BYU. There might be as much hatred in this rivalry as any in the sport. I know I've called Michigan-Michigan State the most petty rivalry. This one will actually have guys like truly playing dirty. Um, they don't like each other. Utah has won nine straight, um, which, which is pretty wild when you think about some of the success BYU has had in recent years. Uh, and a lot of those nine straight have been wild games. Seven of the nine wins have been by just one score. So definitely a game that you're going to want to keep an eye on here uh, in, in the late night hour. We've also got USC at Stanford. USC's really good and Stanford's really bad. I don't expect this to be close. One, I'm, I'm wrong about a lot of things, but one thing that I, that I accurately predicted about three years ago was that this Stanford football program was headed in the wrong direction. It's, it's a really hard place to be successful. And what Jim Harbaugh did there and what David Shaw did there for a while after was pretty amazing. But it's just clear as someone who re follows recruiting, that well went dry. They are not recruiting well. They're, they're, you know, they, they used to have such strong offensive and defensive line play. And then you just mix in a quarterback and a running back and some tall, if not, you know, explosive receivers, and you had everything you needed. And they've just, it, it's, it's, it's been from the trenches and it's worked its way out. They just don't have the line play anymore. Um, and, and from there, it doesn't matter how good your quarterback is. Um, so it's just, yeah, I, I, I don't expect that one to be close. Um, it's, it's a pretty big spread, um, but, uh, but, but I expect USC to win that one going away. And for my three picks for the week, before I get out of here, uh, my first one, I like Florida laying 28 at South Florida. I really almost picked against South Florida last week, but, but ended up holding off. It ended up being like my fourth pick of the week. Um, and NC State won that game 45-0. I just see no reason why Florida wouldn't win this game by at least 35 points. So uh, go ahead and lay the 28 and should be just fine in that one. I also like Colorado getting 17 at home against Texas A&M. Um, this just, looking at the schedule, this just kind of has the looks of one of those games where you're like, huh, look at that score. Maybe, maybe tune into that one. As I'm saying this, I'm realizing that there's just as good a chance that the game I will be at could be that game. I really, really hope that people aren't looking at the Notre Dame Toledo score saying, hmm, maybe I should get this uh, Peacock subscription. But let's just say that this game, uh, this is going to be the one that is going to have a surprising score. I think Colorado keeps it close. I'm not quite on the A&M hype train just yet. Um, and who knows, maybe the altitude could become a factor. I just think this is a sneaky matchup. Watch out for the buffs to keep this one close. So let's uh, let's take the 17 at home and try to keep this one in the 7 to 10 range the whole way. And then lastly, and this one kind of seems like free money, Air Force minus 6.5 at Navy. Navy is like truly awful. I don't know what happened uh, and how they went from, you know, 
just nine wins every season to this, but they're really, really bad. And, and with Air Force, a competent team, laying less than a touchdown, that just seems like an absolute gift. So, you know, even if it's more than six and a half, I say, you know, go for it. But but if you can get it at six and a half, or maybe uh, if, if it gets up to seven, you need to buy it down, maybe think about doing that. But less than a touchdown really, really seems like an easy winner. So we're going to ride the Falcons in that one. With that, that's about all I have to say. Uh, hope everyone has a great week two. I'm looking forward to getting back out into the action. So South Bend, here I come. That concludes the Scoop and Score podcast. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul.